KCSU Stanford, this is the Henry George Program. I am Mark Molino, and I'm joined today by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas. This is a program dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation. Here in the Bay Area and beyond, we compare and contrast the ideas of 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers, also addressed our issues ranging from AI, automation, and universal basic income to the land value tax a concept popularized by George. Today in the program, it is just Jake and I, and we are talking about regressivity in taxes. Without further ado... So yeah, uh, today we are... Uh, something talked about this week. There's a lot of uh, chatter in New York City, uh, Jake's neck of the woods rather than here in the Bay Area, about the public transit. Uh, People have been complaining for a while. The public transit is getting worse. Is, do you feel that that's been the case? I know people say that it's it's always going through funding shortcuts and it's just becoming uh, increasingly dilapidated. Well, as far as the utility for the average rider, I, I don't feel like it's gotten worse, but it was never really that good in the first place. And perhaps that's just because it's so intricate and there's so many stops and so many lines that it does take a lot of... Uh, upkeep, but I've I've never felt it was that good because trains are constantly shut down. They often don't run in the weekends where I live in Brooklyn, and I'm sure that's the case for a lot of the other boroughs as well. Uh, so it, it just always seems like there's a ton of money here. Um, land values are very high in the New York City area, especially Manhattan. There should be a way to pay for all this, but yet we still seem to be riding around in these rickety rust buckets. I mean, I'm certainly envious compared to the situation out here. I mean, it's the public transit in the Bay Area is just uh, unimaginably bad for how much of a world-class area, quote-unquote, this is. I mean, I guess you can see New York City's been coasting, is really letting things kind of fall apart instead of really you know trying to keep up with the Tokyos and Hong Kongs of the world. They're just kind of resting on their laurels. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, Hong Kong, it checks every foot of rail, I think, more than once a week, which is, you know, it's it's incredible how uh, how much work. But okay, so it's like, okay, in a better world, we have our subway uh, and all, all our transit systems well-funded, uh, and uh, Governor... Cuomo is he had assigned a task force to look into congestion pricing, and he really feels congestion pricing uh, in the roadways of New York City, especially the most congested areas in Manhattan, uh, is the way to find a very equitable way to fund public transit. Uh, and there's a lot of theory that backs this up. We'll get to that later. But de Blasio, not a fan of this at all. Uh, de Blasio uh, was saying that he's been looking at all the ideas coming out of Cuomo's task force. He thinks none of them are fair, and he is calling the plan, quote-unquote, regressive. The entire idea of a congestion tax is regressive. He says the rich will pay without thinking, and the poor will be hit uh, You know, every time they drive a car. Uh, and, I mean, a lot of people are taking offense at this. Uh, and uh, and and it kind of gets into what is a regressive tax. But I guess yeah, first, well, what's what's your overall instinct yeah. to this? My sense is, you know, these things are on a spectrum, right? Uh, re- regressivity, progressivity, 
And, you know, not every text that you have, not the entire point of it isn't always to be progressive. Sometimes there's environmental aims. Um, sometimes it's, you know, a text could be regressive and still be still help productivity. And so I do happen to think that uh, congestion pricing is to some degree regressive. Uh, now, all things considered, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad tax at all. I think it's a good thing uh, to do in the right context um, where you do have a more equitable system in general. Uh, using congestion pricing is a very rational pro-environmental way to you know keep roadways clear but you know if you're starting with our current context which is just so messed up in so many ways and saying okay let's introduce another uh, even slightly regressive tax and I can see why uh, de Blasio has that position yeah I think I think a lot of things matter uh, it, it's I mean I think with any kind of tax it's very hard to say you can take a small snapshot of a local view. A few things matter. Where does the money go? What is it for? Why is it being taxed? For what ends? And I think if people say regressive is a conversation ender, I think it isn't very productive. Uh, and also, I'd say it really matters. A lot of people use it very differently. Uh, so, like, regressive in a very, I guess, what has won out in Wikipedia, it talks about the very kind of dry sense of regressive versus progressive taxes are taxes that when the amount you're taxing, as in the the value you're taxing, if it if the if the pie gets bigger, does the tax increase? If it does, it's progressive. If instead uh, it if the pie gets bigger, it's the same rate. It is a flat tax, which is regressive in its mind. Even though I guess it's not quite regressing; it's just flat. Uh, Whereas you could take a more uh, kind of holistic look, and I'm, 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 you know, kind of looking at you know one of the major textbooks of the 20th century, Paul Samuelson's Economics, uh, and he is very focused on uh, on uh, progressive versus regressivity based upon just what the overall income rates are, you know, not wealth rates but income rates. But for an example, if you tax caviar extremely heavily. You know, let's say you have a caviar tax. Is that regressive or progressive? You could say, well, if it's the same amount of, of flat tax based on how much caviar, it's a flat tax, it's regressive. But you could say the rich are eating more caviar. It's going to fall more on the rich. And I guess that's the two questions. What are we even talking about here? Because I guess if we talk about... Right, yeah, right. And I think, you know, it's important to use uh, terms that people will understand in their everyday lives and you're not you know doing sort of linguistic gymnastics to to try to prove your point and befuddle people and so um yeah you should you should ask the question qui bono who benefits right yeah. and um so yeah our, our, our you know if you take a congestion tax for instance people who live outside the core who have to um commute to go to work so this is going to fall harder on them but that doesn't necessarily mean that behavior can't be adjusted. You know, people can go to work at, at different times. And that that regressive in the sense that it's hurting uh, poor people all that much more. Um, you know, so, so but, but if it's part of a whole sort of, you know, holistic tax regime where you've got something like land value tax, you've got these other progressive taxes, then this simply becomes a means of reducing the congestion on the on the roadways and, you know, reducing carbon and other harmful chemicals. 
going into the atmosphere and just makes everything work better. So, you know, context is important and who benefits is important. I, I tend to think the question of, well, you know, what is technically progressive and what is technically regressive? These are academic debates that I don't think have a lot of relevance for for regular people. And I think I think probably just confuses the public dialogue. Yeah, I, I think one thing that is also what is a tax? You know, if everything is, is a tax, a tax is like always tended to be you're the king, you go out, you find people and you, you take out your scepter and you tax them and they have to pay whatever you want. And why? It's to pay for the kingdom. It's to pay for all the... And, I mean, in that sense, you could say the tax is what goes into the general pool to be able to, you know, pay for all the expenditures. Uh, yeah, so the... And I guess the, the there's a difference between what is a tax and what is a user fee correcting for an externality. And right. yeah, I mean it's 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 not the same thing because it serves very different ideas. I mean, right. back this is a semantic game that people people love to play whenever we yeah. <laughs> talk about this subject. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you talk about in the middle middle of the nineteenth century, the federal tax uh, you know expenditures to pay for the military at the time it was very it was relatively small at the time, but the tax at the federal level was pretty much all tariffs. Uh, that's the only way they really got money is by putting tariffs on things going in and out. And that, insofar as it basically increases consumer goods to everyone, it's saying that everyone through effectively an indirect sales tax, which is what the tariff ended up being, is paying for the U.S. federal budget. It doesn't, I mean, and you look at that, if you're if you're filling the federal needs through through a policy that tends to be paid as a greater percentage of, I guess, the effort of the poorest, that is regressive as a whole. But if you look at the case of what is the point of a congestion tax, and the point of a congestion tax is more in line of trying to allocate a resource effectively. I mean, if the public... Tr- it's, it's not zero-sum, right? You're, yeah. you're, trying, you're trying to grow the pie, and the things that reduce the growth of the pie, uh, you know, like congestion, if you can use a tax to reduce congestion, then that's going to mean that the whole machine can operate faster and more efficiently. And, and you know, all, all things being equal, inequality, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so long as it's not exacerbating inequality. I mean, you, you, you hop on the subway, you pay for a token to get on the subway why do you do that? It's because you are paying for the cost of your trip, and no one really says this is, you know, an unfair thing. Although there's a much stronger case to be I, made. I think it's unfair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so okay, so let's go back to theory. So congestion taxes. Uh, I think uh, Pigau, you know, the father of externalities himself. Is I think Pigau or Pagu. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I mispronounce everyone's name, so I will continue to. I mean, I Pigovian taxes. <laughs> Mr. Magoo, Mr. Pagu. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I am one of those guys who sees things in print, and I'm going to say it wrong when I say it out loud. So. Uh, uh yeah, he was, I think, one of the first ones to really come up with it. But uh, most people say uh, William Vickery uh, was a person who really kind of brought it to a higher level of, of, uh, of theoretical basis. And kind of drawing from the work of Harold Hotelling, he was very big in the idea of marginal cost pricing. So the idea of marginal cost pricing is when a city is delivering 
you know, goods to its people. It's, I mean, it delivers things like subways, roadways, you know, crossing a bridge. You build a bridge, you cross the bridge. The question is, how much should it cost to cross the bridge if you really are rationing it? And people say, oh, you put a toll, you know, because you have to pay for the construction. And he says, no, you don't pay for the fixed fees of what goes into it. You pay, people should pay in a correct system for the marginal cost of crossing the bridge. This is efficient for productive. So it doesn't cost $5 to... What uh, is that in, in normal human terms? If you say, you know, if you're thinking to yourself, what is the marginal cost of me crossing this bridge and, and then, you know, I should pay accordingly. It, how, how does that work conceptually? There, there are two things. I guess, like, if you imagine that you are transporting, you know, a bunch of heavy rocks, I mean, you, you are actually kind of hurting the bridge a bit. And over okay. time, bridges... So there's a small... A wear and tear. Wear and tear to an extent. But then also, when you go through and you make it slower to go to the bridge for everyone else, your presence in traffic if traffic isn't free, gotcha. is actually hurting everyone else out. So those are the two things. And he said, really, we should allocate roadways through uh, congestion taxes. He said parking spots. Instead of saying parking is free, and instead of saying there's a flat fee, he thought we should dynamically allocate prices so that based upon how congested parking is, it increases and decreases in price. And... You know, that that is being done to some... Uh, San Francisco has been doing dynamic uh, allocation of parking spots in uh, the last uh, decade. I mean, they still have a lot of free parking, and it doesn't really completely work, but it works that same idea, that what you want to do is you have a certain amount of parking spots. You want to make sure you're allocating correctly and not having a lot of waste of people driving around looking for parking and, yeah... Yeah, and that becomes a lot easier now with uh, technology that can kind of increase and decrease the price depending on when you get on. Speaking of congestion pricing, uh, when I went to Singapore, when you put your, and I'm sure it works this way in other cities as well. It might even work that way in the Bay Area, you tell me. But um, yeah, depending on when you take the train, it'll charge you more or less. And it goes up and down by you know pennies each time Um just to account for the fact that more people will be on the train at that time. And if you can't avoid going at peak hour, then do, because you'll save money. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, too. You talk about when you take train rides, like let's say you take like the Caltrain here in the Bay Area, if you, who pays the least on average? It's commuters who take it at peak times and they get like a monthly pass and they per ride, they pay less. Who pays relatively the most? People who take marginal rides and mostly empty trains during off-peak times. They pay a higher fee when really this is exactly backwards. When the trains are empty, the the fares should go down. It should be free. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it should be basically... But then you'd say, well, where where does the money come from? Like, if those people aren't paying for when it's free, why should we even run it? Um, And the obvious Georgia's answer is that, well... There's this principle of uh, oh you you know wear and tear you're creating congestion, um, all of these other costs to other people. But th- there's also the idea of paying in proportion to the benefit that you receive, right? So if you own the property right next to the train station, then you know when when they construct that train station, the value of your land is going to go up. So you know you should pay in proportion to that greater value that. You can either charge renters to live in your building or that you can sell 
to somebody else. I mean, it's the same. It's the same kind of idea of let's say instead of a city, you're looking, you're building a, a skyscraper. You're building a skyscraper. And it costs people to ride the elevator. There's a certain amount of wear and tear. A bunch of people go on. You got to replace the cables eventually. How much do you charge people to ride the elevator? The answer is, one, it's pretty small. And even though you could... Fat tax. Yeah, the fat tax. Even though you could, you know, say, okay, pay, you know, pay a buck, you should. You realize you'll come out ahead if you don't charge them pretty much anything because you can charge more for the people using the higher levels of the skyscraper. If you nickel and dime people to use the elevator, then the upper stories don't become as you know easy to rent. In a city, if you nickel and dime people to ride the Caltrain, it becomes very hard for people to you know say that they really should spend a lot more to run properties near train stations. Whereas if you run a train almost as a loss... You can really, I mean, this is, we talked about this in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has incredibly cheap subways, and they make more money on their subway than anything because they're able to charge for rents near the subway stations. There's another way of doing it, and I think DC does this in other areas, but it's how far you travel on the train. And this actually does seem regressive uh, to, not, not for everybody. Of course, there's people that live in, wealthy suburbs uh, and whatnot. But I, mean, the, I think the people that it hurts, that it hits hardest are those people who live in maybe the outer boroughs or some of these areas where they live there not because they're part of a wealthy community, but because that's where they have to live in order to be somewhat near their menial jobs. Yeah, I mean, that's actually that's how it is in the Bay Area. We have zones in the Caltrain, and you pay more for... I mean, the, it's the New York City system where you just pay... You get you get into the spider's web, and then you go out, and it's the same. That's you know, It's very cool. Uh, and I, I think it... I, I absolutely agree that it's pretty cool that if you take, you know, from, you know, inner city to inner city versus outer borough, you're not really penalized for that. Whereas here, if you live out in Pittsburgh... Out, outside of Oakland and go in, it's going to cost you, you know, more. And some people might say that, you know, that, that that's unfair. Why, why should you get to travel farther? You know, if you're taking a plane from New York to Tokyo, you should obviously you should pay more than if you went New York to Chicago. But I think it is a little bit different in the sense that the city as a whole benefits from the fact that lots of people can fluidly come in and out of the city and be part of the commerce. There's everyone benefits from that greater revenue, no matter how you, well, not no matter how you collect the revenue, but almost any way that you could collect the revenue that that's going to benefit everyone. And there's going to be greater productivity and there's going to be more people filling uh, job roles and more jobs being offered. So it's worth taking a little bit of a loss on the fact that some people who maybe can't afford to live in the center of things can get to the center very easily. Yeah, I mean, I think you talk about, you know, it's very different. Yeah, airplanes with different cities, they aren't really an agglomerated, you know, central, centrally managed system, unlike, you know, a large, a large city. New York City is, you know, all the boroughs are run by a centralized authority, and they should be able to allocate it efficiently. They're not just individual individual actors uh and uh yeah i mean i guess it's a similar question to let's say that you have an old crowded bridge and you put a new bridge up that's brand new to help relieve the traffic how much should you charge for a toll for each the old one was built 100 years ago the new one is brand new and people might say you should charge 
you know, a toll for the new bridge to pay for it. And the old bridge, you know, it's already paid for. You don't charge a toll. And, you know, Vickery and other people in marginal cost pricing say that's exactly backwards. <laughs> you put congestion toll on the crowded old bridge, even though it's paid for. Who cares about financing? Everything goes centralized through the city. You can manage and allocate things at a higher level. You don't have to care what's a new bridge versus an old bridge. Yeah. Is the right way to think about it that, you know, the the brick and mortar are, you know, whatever you're building your bridge out of um, isn't what makes the bridge uh, valuable. It's not what allows it to provide utility to citizens. It's it's its location. Is that the right way to? Yeah, think I mean, of I, this? I, or, I think absolutely. It's what's really important is its role in the network, and not so much the fact that you know we put a bunch of you know we built a pyramid that just does nothing. It's I mean it's useful because it's part of a very useful. I mean we do things like congestion taxes, you know, historically for things like. Uh, public infrastructure, uh, such as like utilities, I mean, things like uh, uh, telecommunications, you know, because when you say like it's a big network, you want to make sure that you don't say, well, we just laid this wire. Let's actually, you know, we need to pay for the new wire. It's like, no, you want to make sure the network is correctly right. saturated. Because there's this other concept, too, of the, the network effect, right? It's like, okay, if I only, you know, in the early days of telephones, if I'm the only one with a telephone, the telephone, despite it being a marvel of uh, technological innovation isn't valuable by itself. It's only valuable if you have one and, you know, family members have one and friends have one. And so in order, what what gives the phone its value isn't the technology, it's not the materials that go into it, it's the fact that there's this healthy network that through its continued use makes it valuable. And it's, I guess it's the same concept with a city. Absolutely. Yeah, and actually and Mar- bridges and all the, yeah. Yeah, Vickery's work in marginal cost pricing has to do exactly with the network effect. There's there's a related term uh, that explains this. This is uh, the idea of a declining cost industry. So for most things, if you think about supply versus demand, let's say you want to make you know a hundred tennis balls. You know how much work is it? How much you make? Let's make one hundred and five, one hundred and ten. Let's make a thousand. Every additional tennis ball at a certain level, you're really scrimping. It becomes harder to get the rubber. It becomes harder to get labor. And eventually, each tennis ball gets a little bit more expensive. This is you know, kind of the traditional supply and demand of an increasing cost industry. At a certain level, each tennis ball becomes somewhat expensive. And you just say, well, unless I upgrade my factories, I just have to throw it in. This is as many as I can produce for the cost I want to do. And that's what's called like an increasing cost industry. It's the kind of standard econ 101 idea. The opposite of that, look at something like Facebook. Something like Facebook, if you have 10 users, it's actually really hard to make it work. If you have 100 users, when you start getting to millions and billions of users, each additional user actually makes it more, it makes everything more valuable. So it's actually I guess that's why it's hard to, to get people to leave Facebook. I mean, for a while, every, they were trying to get everybody to go to Google Plus. But you could build a social networking site that was twice as, three times as good, four times. You know, it doesn't yeah. really matter. The fact is that everybody's on Facebook. So no matter how bad Facebook is, people still want to be on it because that's that's where everyone yeah. is. And, and, you know, that might change, but it doesn't change because it doesn't change at a marginal level. Right. Yeah, it, 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 it will change each person all- leaving all at it once. It changes as the network changes, yes. Yeah, like MySpace to Facebook. It changes in a big way all of a sudden. Uh, I, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's if you consider, like, yeah, if you want to compete against a tennis ball, 
company and you go out there and you make a new tennis ball, sure, you can sell a few tennis balls, make a few bucks. You can't make a small Facebook and compete and make a few bucks. It doesn't really work that way. You have to either be go big or go home, you know? I guess uh, like another similar idea is uh, Esperanto. Yeah. Right. What's all so I guess I guess languages are kinda like a network effect, right? So if yeah. <laughs> you know, Esperanto could be this amazing language, but if there aren't a lot of other people to speak it with, well yeah. you know, it's not that useful. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's I mean that's why English is for all its flaws of, of all the unfortunate people who have to learn it. A very hard language to learn, but you you gotta be part of that. It raises good bang for your buck, you know. Even, like it literally, it has so many exceptions and contradictions, and yeah. you just have to learn all of these. But yet, everyone speaks it because yeah, that's what the network's doing. So yeah, within a city, it's a similar idea with a uh, a decreasing cost industry. Uh, like, could you run a small train station yourself? You get together a few bucks, you scrape together, and you you know make your own train to compete with the subway. No, you're not going to compete with the subway. Uh, a subway, almost by definition, is a natural monopoly. And a natural monopoly really makes sense to be administered by the city because it is a decreasing cost industry. And those who really believe in the ideas of marginal cost pricing should say, a central city should administer natural monopolies and should basically subsidize them for fist, fixed capital to the idea that you can charge everyone the marginal cost of using it. That's what Henry George said back in 1880, and a lot of the major economists talking about public finance theory in the mid-20th century continue to say the uh, same thing, and I, I tend to think it's very sound. There are some libertarians I run across online who will say, no, 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 we ought to have competitive markets for, for roads. Um that seems a bit bizarre to me. I haven't thought about it in incredible depth. Uh, I, I think, I guess, it, it might be all right if you had a private company that paid um, sort of, uh, you know, a, a cost that was bid on by lots of other companies and, you know, the, the full value is being collected of, of, that, of that space. But, you know, the idea that, okay, I want to go from A to B. Well, who are, who are the competitors in the market who are going to charge me the lowest toll from going to A to B? No, there's there's only one best way from A to B. It's like a direct route. You wouldn't say, oh, well, you know, I want to take the spherical route or I want to take this other circuitous route. No, there, there's just A to B, and that's the best way to do it. And so that should be managed for the public benefit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very easy to say, you know, I learned in Econ 101 that if you're making tennis balls, it's good to have competition to drive tennis balls down. That's true. When you have things that are just widgets getting pumped out, it would be very good to have competitive markets. But there isn't really the same scarce location that makes it impossible to really compete in the same in the same idea here. And there's a reason you don't see people go out and just say, oh, I'm going to build my better Caltrain. It's like, well, good luck, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, even to, to uh, ruin your tennis ball example a, a little bit, um, but not, not totally. Uh, you, you know, you spoke of rubber, right? Or you speak of some other natural resource that might be fixed in supply like, like oil. Yeah. And I think re really the point is that yeah, it, it, it's kind of like this um, playground that everybody wants to get in or this like theme park and, and everybody needs tickets and they need the, the right to enter and compete with each other. But at the point where you're allowing some of the people who enter this theme park to like own the theme, 
like aspects of the theme park itself like you know the walkways and yeah. you know you're not charging for rides anymore which are, are the things that are fun and add value you're you're charging for the right to walk from one ride to the next uh you're charging for something that's just you know limited in supply there's there's no alternatives to it and you have to have it in order to go to the next ride so you know this is this is a um uh, hopefully I can say this on the air because I, I don't mean it in a grotesque way, but this is like a bastardization of, of the idea of uh, capitalism, right? This isn't necessarily like good capitalistic practice, you know, competitive practice itself. It's it, it's just a way of gaming the system. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it's something that is efficient only if things only exist as atoms and there's no real benefit to, you know, kind of a community or kind of... Uh, combinations, agglomerations of of space. You talk about like a, a carnival or like a fairground or a, a amusement park. In the in the past, if you have everyone have their own stands, it tends to be kind of a kind of loosely organized bazaar, and you could have a lot of people doing a lot of yeah. It's like oh, I'm going to crowd up this this entry because it's going to be you know the best place to put my thing, and you tend to not have good traffic overall. That was uh, talking about Harold Hotelling. He had the classic idea of a hotelling's law. Let's say you have. Uh, uh, two food stands on a beach, and they want to get as much. Uh, oh right, right, yeah. They want to get as much traffic on the beach, so they will both kind of inch together to kind of grab as much of the pie as they can. And as you realize, if you want to have everyone be as close as they can to a stand, you'd put one at one node, and then one other, you know, kind of would be was a one third, two thirds would be about right. Uh, but instead, they would inch up like, oh, if I inch a little closer to the center, I can steal a little bit of that guy's. Uh, audience, and then the other guy inches in a bit himself, and then eventually you have them both back to back in the middle of the beach, which isn't how you'd ever plan it overall. Right? Yeah. Like if you had this, you know, this beach community or beachgoers, and and you'd say, well, yeah, let's have an ice cream stand equidistant from each other, yeah, so that you'd have to walk the least distance to get ice cream, you know. And why would the ice cream people want to locate next to each other? Uh, you know that that just means that they're going to have to com- to compete. You know, and if people don't want to walk far, then even if you're not, you don't produce as good of ice cream, you'll still get more customers. But the fact that you know there's this spatial dimension to it where you can kind of like crowd other competitors out simply by where you put your stand or you know whatever your firm or company is. That you know this just means that. Uh, it's the strange phenomena where very similar products and services that you would think would be far apart from each other are actually all in the same place. Yeah, I mean, you can look at it makes sense. <laughs> you can look at he he uh, you know makes a kind of uh, bunch of of uh, of calculations on what the profit should be for each of these ice cream stands on the beach, and. Uh, one thing that's very interesting is the cost of traveling down the beach. The harder it is to travel, the more profit they get. So if you think about selfishly, it is in their benefit to make it really hard to move around. They should actually like put tax on the beach. They should like put crabs that attack you because they want to make sure you you don't get able to move around. Which is very that's that's rent seeking behavior just right there. It 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 helps you to hurt transportation options. You imagine landlords in in, in a in a big crowded city. They would love it if a highway got really wrecked because they'd say, "Okay, you know, now your commute sucks even more." <laughs> they would love it uh, in the kind of larger terms. And I think that if you talk about the difference between like a kind of you know kind of econ one hundred and one, which rarely when you're talking about supply and demand ever talks about locational effects 
Karl Marx never talked about locational effects. If you really are taking location into effect, it's very hard not to come up with these very same ideas. They just naturally fall out. But it's very easy to kind of say, well, ignore locational effects to start with. Okay, so, but to go back to the kind of holistic ideas of regressivity, and you're talking about, uh, you know, people who, I mean, uh, De Blasio's quote is saying, you know, a rich person won't, you know, won't even feel the the congestion tax, whereas a poor person will. So poor people in the outer boroughs, you're talking about outer boroughs driving into Manhattan, or which which Manhattan would be really the prime place to get congestion taxes. People going from outside to within, four uh, percent of people. Uh, go by car from the outer boroughs, 58% go by public transit. So the fact is, if you charge you know, more or less for transit fares, it's going to be hurting the poor far more than it's... Than but it's this, this is the subset of the poor who have cars. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 40% so, so of... they're the, not the worst of the worst, right? Yeah. I mean, and really, if you're saying, you know... What is regressive is the idea of saying, like, in the Bay Area, I got around for, I didn't own a car, because I lived, I lived on campus here at Stanford, so it was it was okay not to have a car uh, for s- seven years. Uh, and I've, I even lived in the city without a car, I mean, down in Mountain View, and taking the bus to get around, it, you know, it it's a very unreliable means of transportation. It's not r- relatively that cheap. Uh, and yeah, it's it's just kind of it's it's something that people only take when they're unfortunate enough to basically be in a situation where it's it's it kind of costs a lot to take care of a car, but you need it if people don't deliver the public transit, which is uh, in general a much uh, yeah, uh, something you can actually build at scale and make it affordable for people to really get around. Yeah, I want to clarify. I'm not scoffing at the fact that lower income or less wealthy people have cars i'm just saying that they probably are better off than the poorest of the poor that can't even afford but no i think you're making cars. an interesting point in new york city though you if you're a poor person who has a car it's it might it's more likely to be a choice when you have an, a a world class subway system in the bay area if you have to have a car cuz the public yes. transit doesn't give you a choice and that's what really sucks is when you are stuck in a situation because you have no good alternatives. And I think, yeah, I mean, and in both cases, I think a really more equitable answer would say you give better public transportation to, to people, and that's really going to benefit the, the worst off. Well, and the even more equitable solution would be to provide the framework where more people can live where they want to be in the first place so that commuting doesn't have to happen. And, you know, that's another kind of congestion charging, if you will, for people that want to own space in the center of things, they ought to pay so that, uh, you know, they'll build as high as they can and that, you know, they're not going to fight to keep, you know, very low uh, building height restrictions, things of that nature. I mean, absolutely. Over here in the Bay Area, it's it's insane of like people who commute five hours a day because they know they can earn more in the city. They can only afford to live in Manteca, Vacaville, Tracy, all these areas out in there. And they commute five hours a day uh, because that's the best they can get. And the fact that that we don't deliver them housing in the Bay Area at affordable costs for enough for everyone who, who needs it, like, yeah, that's absolutely incredibly regressive that we are wasting their lives 
doing these hellish commutes every day instead of just building housing. And why do they not build housing? A lot of people say, well, if you build more housing, you're going to add more traffic. And that's largely because they're using this kind right. of we have the you know the you know you use a roadway it should always be free if you're if you're upset about traffic you know you have to start looking at ways that you actually start one allocating it better directly through congestion taxes or you fix your public transit which will in turn really help your you know avoid the necessity to use the over congested roads. I mean earlier this week. I mean it, it's a. Um it, these things can all work with each other, right? If if you if you have the congestion pricing for you know owning surface area plus the congestion pricing for occupying roads, in other words, you're paying for space, whether it's on a public roadway or whether it's a private lot in the in the center of town. And the combination of these just means that everybody can access the areas they want to much more easily and. The fact that neither of them are implemented just exacerbates the problem such that whenever you propose either one in isolation, uh, people say, no, 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 we don't want that because that would exacerbate the other one. Whereas implemented both, yeah, then that, w- <laughs> that would get rid of both of these issues. Yeah, if you can visualize what you're going towards and do it, you can actually try to actually do something that is really going to do what you want it to do. And if you say instead saying, no, let's do none of those things. Let's try to keep it like the 1970s forever. And if we just, if we just, you know, really tack down, never build, re, you know, have these big streets that never change, it it will stay the same. It's that's not really. I mean, it's just putting your head in the sand. You are not considering any way to get what you want you're just simply trying to it's a cargo cult if you make it look like the 70s with big 70s roads it's going to feel like the 70s forever and it's no it's going to be like dressing your kid up in baby clothes you know until the time they're 16 it's just you have to actually plan for it and adapt to the fact that things change and not just try to ignore it and yeah if you look at a all the different solutions that work together to allocate people to the areas they should be and to get around the ways they should be, you can have ways that there won't be suffering. And if you have people just constricted <laughs> into what's not working, you're going to have a lot of, of suffering. And, and that's the thing, too, of it's a luxury around here to take public transit. The uh, Earlier this week, uh, uh, a girlfriend and I went up to uh, uh, San Francisco, and we thought it would be you know kind of more fun to take the train. We took the train back and forth you know, and it cost. Uh, oh yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, it's bet, like thirty bucks, right? Yeah, it cost. Uh, I, I think thirty-three dollars for you know two round trips. If we took the car there, found free parking, which we would, and got back there in this, it would have cost a fraction of that. But we thought actually, oh, it would be nice to do this, uh, and it's a luxury. You know, it would have been far cheaper, and that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that this train, which is running anyway, the marginal cost of us being on a mostly empty train is negligible, that the city isn't saying, hey, let's get more cars off the road. At times, you know, the traffic, you know, we would have been contributing to traffic instead. Uh, and it's doing a terrible job allocation in that sense. And Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you say it's, 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 a, it's you know, what is the real luxury? The real luxury is we allocate so much space for parking and so much infrastructure for free roadways. I mean, we we treat the cars like king in a certain way that and it it's 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 a choice we make. It's not the natural way of things. It's a choice we've made to have free parking, free roadways, 
And, you know, if you are in a pretty small suburb, it works out pretty well. It's a very kind of flexible way to build a very small area and get around. I, I wouldn't knock you at all for saying, oh, let's build a, a suburb for, you know, Cornsville, uh, Iowa. It, but it's it doesn't make any sense that people would treat the roadways in a major metropolitan area the same way. There's so many historical reasons that are really layered on each other for, for why we have the kind of cities that we do and, you know, why we're stuck in the quagmire that we're in. In Europe, most of these cities had already been built. They were quite dense. They were made for walking. Um, you had to walk. and. You had to walk. And so, you know, they're nice, like cobblestone roads and, and whatnot. And, you know, in, in the United States, uh, to a lesser degree with, you know, cities like uh, at least inner cities of, you know, New York and some of the East Coast. Uh, Pre-car cities. cities. It, it, this was sort of like where car culture started pushing everyone out into the, the burbs and uh, you know a major reason for that was actually congestion right because if you look at well correlation isn't causation but there's a huge correlation between violence and lead in gasoline so before gas became unleaded uh, there was just way more crime in in American cities and yeah, pollution, nasty stuff in the water. This certainly, I don't think, is likely to make people more docile. And so, you know, this, I think, probably was a contributing factor to white flight and s some of these these issues. But well, you uh, look at the way people treated getting out, you know, like a play, like George Washington slept here. Uh, it, was, it's, it was, you know, these cities are kind of crowded, dirty places. And like, wouldn't yeah. it be nice to get a breath of fresh air for a change? And part of this is the fact that we had congested cities with no sort of pollution overhead. And I mean, yeah, Pittsburgh, the turn of the century had, you know, the air was black. <laughs> it was, it was a lot right. of these places you had to live there because, you know, it was, it was really, it had benefits. But man, it was unpleasant in a lot of ways. Could you have the best of both worlds? Yes, if you look at what you want. You want dense, walkable areas that are affordable, have things everyone wants in the right quantities everyone wants, but you also want clean air. And you also, you know, don't want people to be just, you know, just uh, packed shoulder to shoulder all the time. And you could have... I, I think that people have the wrong idea when they think of density, right? They they imagine like um, a Manila shantytown or like Mumbai or something like that. But okay, even, even take New York, for example, uh, the Upper East Side, it's as dense... I believe as uh, as Manila is, right? And when you if you go to the Upper East Side, it's nice. There's trees on the walkways. You know, you, you I don't know five ten minutes depending on where you are. You can walk walk to Central Park, uh, and yeah, it, it's one of the densest places in in, in the world. Um, and but it but it doesn't feel like oh, there's this ominous tower over me. And you're not in Times Square. Times Square is totally different. That's where all the, the, the tourists are, and, and that's why that area feels so uncomfortable. Yeah, um, I mean, it's if you talk... But density doesn't equal... It isn't bad. It's all the way you use space. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you... And, and do people want that level of density? I mean, I think that the fact that there's so much demand for this real estate, it speaks for itself. 
You know, I mean, there is more people want to live in dense urban areas. And I, I think in the past, people said, like, after white flight, you know, the inner city is where people are stuck. The sad truth is in the future, you know, the poorest people won't be stuck in the inner city. They'll be stuck in really badly managed suburbs that are just fallen into disarray. And they will not only be, you know, without hope of getting out of these awful places, but they will also be invisible. Because unlike the inner city, you don't even pay attention to them anymore. They'll just be out in this... You don't have to pass them on your way to to your, you know, finance job. Yeah, absolutely. You'll just be out of sight, out of mind. And I mean, it really is the difference. Like, you know, if if you've ever like cleaned up your room and thought, thought, wow, there is so much more space in here than I thought there was when I bought those plastic tubs and actually tried to like stack things to to the side. Um, You know, maybe you bought like a Murphy bed, especially if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? And you just, you know, it's amazing what you can do when you just kind of clean things up and, you know, make the most efficient use of the space. I mean, you have to make your densities the best densities they can be. And it's very weird when you have people trying to have just very normal suburbs, you know, right on the edge of our great dense cities. It's like you can have it other places and it's perfectly all right, you know, if you want to, you know, choose a more kind of a rural atmosphere have a big yard uh, you know but like it doesn't make what is considered rural will in in you know in objective measurement terms will be closer to the city center so yes yeah. this is rural but this is the new rural this is the new country which before would have been considered the, like suburb or peri-urban territory yeah, I mean, I think you, you have to look at what is a luxury within a dense area. And, I mean, this is why they called, uh, when they're talking about the land value tax in London, the garden tax. I mean, if you are in a dense city where people, uh, really more people want to get in, it it really is not equitable to say that you should have a large garden while people are, you know, paying their entire monthly rent is, you know, just to, you know, just to get by. It's fine to have a garden. Just have the garden on the rooftop or... You make it work. <laughs> Don't do it inefficiently. Yeah. You have to be smart about it. Or, or, you know, I, I see these public gardens sometimes, and they're they're often not managed very well. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, w- I mean, why do we have parks? Why not have the, the urban garden in the park? There's I mean, plenty of space for it. And people say, oh, yeah. gardens, because people like gardens. But the truth is, you look at inefficiencies, for every garden that's inefficiently used, there's going to be three you know, you know, flat parking lots that are right. the inefficient uses. And if you say instead of saying the garden tax, you call it a parking lot tax, uh, you know, if and, and I think in a dense area like Manhattan, you should not have badly used, you know, not built up parking garages that are just one story and you still see them and it, there's no good reason they should ever exist for a moment <laughs> next to a large building. And, yeah, th- there's all kinds of creative and c- cool stuff you can do. I mean, the High Line here in New York was literally like an old train line that they just put a walkway on and put a bunch of garden stuff. And, you know, that's that's pretty nice as well. Uh, I, I'm not fully endorsing that yeah. um, just because it, it was largely a scheme by the landowners on the, on the west side to kind of boost their property values. And it may have actually had a higher utility as, you know, sort of a – the west side of Manhattan uh, train line, yeah. But um, you know, there's all kinds of ways to, you know, think vertically and still have all of your greenery and a lot more, frankly. 
Well, and I think a big part is also like when you centrally plan, you can have things that are inefficient that help as, as a large. Central Park, you could say it's inefficient not to use every bit of that for more housing. It's like, no, it's people, people as right. aggregate benefit from having a nice big park, which is why if there really was libertarian wonderland, you would never have someone say, I have the park and I choose to keep it as a park. You'd have Everyone would lose and it really would turn into Manila shantytown. But because you have a centralized authority that is able to kind of allocate areas for parkland, you are able to kind of have a, a, a aggregate benefit. From uh, from that use, yeah. There's no there's no efficiency in a, a vacuum, right? Efficiency refers to some sort of value system, and I think unfortunately the libertarians have kind of uh, you know taken that term as their own. Is that's efficient? Well, efficient toward your very myopic understanding of of what would be valuable and and good for human flourishing. If you define goodness as people, you know, they're not being poverty. People people have apartments where they near where they live and work. There's lots of greenery. Um, there's little congestion. Then the most efficient thing you can do is to you know tax the occupation of of space because this would lead to those sorts of results. Not because uh, you know it maximizes shareholder revenue. Yeah, I that mean, isn't the you know that's not the gold standard in efficiency. I mean, efficiency, like regressivity, is one of those words that can mean, you know, 20 different things, depending on, like, exactly what specific use. Uh, but to go back to uh, to regressivity, this is another uh, kind of snippet from uh, the Samuelson, uh, you know, the kind of the major economics textbook of the 20th century. And I think it's an interesting snapshot. This is a, a mid-50s edition I'm looking at. Uh, he is talking about progressive federal taxes versus uh, local taxes and state taxes. And he talks about the local property tax uh, tends to be regressive. And he. this is a quote from this. In colonial times, a man's total income and wealth may have all been connected with real estate. If so, the effect of a tax on such property would have been roughly the same as a proportional tax on income. Today, when so much of wealth and income is divorced from real estate, the property tax may be regressive relative to income, especially since small properties tend to be assessed relatively higher than large. So there's a few interesting things there, and I think it largely has to do with the time. At the time of white flight and easy suburbs and people getting cars, this was kind of the high time that there really wasn't so much uh, aggregate wealth in urban centers. It was it was relatively declining, and people said, "Yeah, you know, you move out to the suburbs, things are basically free as far as land goes. Roads are basically free; they're nice and easy." And it was a it was kind of a weird time for a brief transitional moment. You know, land was free and living was Although easy. Although that did change, and suburban land did become, you know, collectively more valuable than than its urban counterpart at, at sort of once everybody was out in the burbs. Exactly. I mean, I think it's it was kind of only the snapshot when everyone is kind of spreading out until it saturates. I mean, you know, once upon a time, Palo Alto, you know, it was a farmland, you turn it into cheap housing, but then when that runs out, it starts being worth millions uh, of, of dollars. I mean, and it's, it's saying, and people would make a claim that, you know, a, a flat tax on, on land values is regressive. If you use it in a very you know, dry sense of it, it is a flat tax per land value. It's like, okay, in that very... So define flat for our, our listeners. I mean, saying like if you have, you know, a $5 million parcel of land 
you uh, pay 100% of rent. <laughs> if it's a 10 million, you pay 100% of rent. So I guess that's a flat tax. It's it's 100% anyway. So, so like in practical terms, regardless of what your property is worth, yeah, you're you're paying the same percentage. Exactly, the percentage for some is unit flat. of time as, as somebody else. So if it's if it's two percent. It's not going to be that in California because I think what what's the max one percent because of Prop thirteen. Uh, it's it's one percent two percent change per year I believe. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, so so it's it's limited by that amount, but it it's irrespective of what the total value of your property is. So in in that sense, the rate is or you know the you know, some people call it like the mill rate like that's flat. Yeah. But if you own the much more valuable piece of property. And in this case, we're talking uh, about we're, you're yeah. going to pay a lot more per year than somebody who owns a relatively less valuable property, even though the rate is the same. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and that's the thing too. When you're talking about, you know, I think people find it to be strange if they are very different things. But if you're talking about land value, this is something which is really a socially constructed value, and you're not really saying you're you know, uh, charging a certain percentage of 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 tax on it doesn't have the same, you know, uh, impact as you're talking about income. Uh, and I, I guess one thing I'm saying is, if you want to look at the difference of how much is this, you know, uh, real estate uh, today, there's a, an article that just uh, dropped by Richard Florida about the total value of America's urban land. Uh, and yeah, any any guess offhand what the total value of America's urban land is? It's an incredible figure. Uh, trillions. $25 trillion. Uh, and there's a really cool map uh, of, of this. You, I'm actually surprised that it's not more, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean, I think part of this is it's more than double the uh, GDP uh which uh so here's a map of it and there's like circles for how much the value is and gigantic circle for uh, New York City gigantic circle for LA uh the bay area is big uh and you have a few other you know cities you can you can see I mean you can see what is what is new just for curiosity what is uh New York compared to San Francisco is it is it significantly larger uh, yeah, so New York, the the it's the total land value two point five trillion. New York City, and it talks about the difference between uh, average land in the entire city area, and then also the urban core. So the average land in New York City, if you get an acre of land, five million dollars, five point two million dollars. If you get the central central land per acre, one hundred twenty three million dollars. <laughs> And I mean that's the thing; it's not going away. There are people who are holding on to land in the central areas of New York, and they're they're they have land worth 123 million. And we're riding around in these rusty buckets, or yeah, <laughs> that, that only run on weekdays between a particular time. And there, there's plenty of money to pay for this stuff. And that's the thing; it's in, and I guess that's the overall crazy thing about like what should we look at for taxes. If you are in New York City, you are already paying a tax on this. You're paying a tax, a private tax, to the you know indirectly or directly to the people who own this land, instead of paying a public tax, which could make up for what you pay in different ways to different you know public taxes to the you know local and 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 more federated level. And it, it's not like if you tax this, it goes away. You are still getting assessed 
the for for use of, of, of this to begin with. So 123 million. I guess you go down to San Francisco, uh, 3.2 million for average in the city, uh, 25 million. Uh, you know, it's it's not quite as, as dense as, as the central parts of Manhattan. But it, I, I guess per capita, though, I would I would think that the Bay Area would actually have higher land values per capita, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think it probably matters exactly where you do the cutoff for the metro area, because I think you can probably imagine you can find f- affordable housing down a train right away in New York a lot quicker than you'll find a, a reasonable commute in the Bay Area. So they have different profiles, certainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Def- definitely it's difficult to compare you know, apples to apples, given that despite how bad the train system is here, it's it's still... I guess more connected than all the trains out in the Bay Area. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at uh, you could San Jose, two point three million for an average, three point five for the Central, which shows you those are almost the same, two point three, three point five, because there isn't really right. there's no Manhattan in San Jose. It's, You're already maxed out. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no more space. Yeah, I mean, and they're not and they're not developing uh, more to make it Manhattan because right. if you do that, then you can have a really dense, you know, kind of centrally connected connected area. And so I guess just to point out this, it's one more flower, I think, of of saying how regressive can be misleading. When you look in aggregate of all local property values, which includes improvements as well as the original land, in all places of the U.S., if yeah, you look at this, there's only a few of these big nodes. And I, I think if you look at a small town, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be basically flat. Uh, but if you look at the the major cities, which is you know affects more and more of of the flavor of what actually uh, is happening and where people want to be and you know where people really suffer to be, uh, the, the major conclusion is it's certainly not a regressive tax there in the holistic idea of it's not the poor people on the land there. So that's been today's Henry George program. More information on past episodes, links to subscribe to the podcast, etc., etc., can be found on the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU Stanford. <laughs>